Quite simply, we can teach better as a society when we better know how students learn. A lot of research has been done through classroom observation, but getting down to learning from a neurocognitive perspective can really help researchers better assess what works and what doesn't. Jonah Firestone from WSU Tri-Cities runs a lab called, wait for it, the Simulation and Integrated Media for Instruction Assessment and Neurocognition Site. <laughs> no joke, that's the name of it. As you can imagine, there's an acronym, Simeon. Jonah tells us about Simeon and his love of sci-fi. Education Eclipse starts now. Education, news, and research. These are the conversations happening inside education, athletic training, sports science, and sport management that are going to transform each. It's Education Eclipse from Washington State University. Back here on Education Eclipse, and I'm with the great Jonah Firestone at WSU Tri-Cities. He's an assistant professor of science ed, but here's the real mouthful. He's the head of the Simulated and Integrated Technology for Instruction, Assessment, and Neurocognition, or Simeon Lab. I really think, Jonah, that you you were like, okay, what do we need to do to make it an acronym, a good, strong acronym? Let's let's put this word in there. Yes. And so um, part of the story was I had to change the name of the lab because there was already a name of the lab in existence, the name I had previously. But also, I just happened to own a website called the Simian Cybernetics. Com. Again, assistant professor of science ed. So before we get into the lab stuff, I, I would guess I want to be respectful and not say science nerd, uh, but sci-fi uh, enthusiast, I would imagine. Yes, I would probably be considered a sci-fi enthusiast. Matter of fact, um, long ago when I was a high school teacher, I actually also was part of a science fiction podcast called The Sci-Fi Scoundrels. Of course you were. So, yes, that lasted about three years, and it was very obnoxious, and please don't look it up. I don't think you can anymore. I think they've all been purged from the internet. By law, the judge said these have to go away. <laughs> well, I can't talk about it. Here in here in his office for the listener, I'm just going to give him a brief overview. Brief, because we could, we could actually spend all day doing this. He's got a, looks like a bumper sticker that says Vulcan Science Academy for the Logical Education. It's a Star Trek one. I see various uh, Star Trek toys. Man, this is full of stuff that suggests that uh, there's no reason you should have ever been able to get married. No, no, actually. I And the thing is, my wife knew me since high school, so I'm pretty sure somebody, like, paid her off or she owed money to the mob or something. <laughs> well, on that note, since you now have credibility as a science guy, you do have this this lab with this incredibly long name, but let's let's just let's talk about the lab first, the simulated and integrated technology. That part, I, I get that for instruction, assessment, and neurocognition. So it has a purpose. What do you do in the lab? So we run various projects about virtual reality, augmented reality, learning, and neurocognition. So to do that, we use um, tools such as HTC Vive for virtual reality. We have three sets that we're running that we have students come in, and I'll be sending out sets of these to the schools, the STEM schools in the area, for students to use kind of in real time. We use augmented reality also in the, in the same way, either using something called the HoloLens, which is a computer that basically rests on your head. And um, it sounds less painful than you'd think, but it creates augmented reality around you like Pokemon Go, except wherever you look, along with um, iPad minis for kids to use, use augmented reality for learning, uh, science vocabulary or to help them learn science concepts. In addition, we do direct brain measurements 
um, using something called the FNIR, which is functional near um, infrared, which measures the amount of blood flow in the frontal lobes of your brain, the front of your brain, the thinking part of your brain. So the harder you're thinking about something, the more blood flow, the more oxygen goes to that part of the brain. So we can monitor in real time how hard you're thinking about something or how little you're thinking about something, depending on um, the situation, whether it's a class situation or learning or virtual or augmented reality. That's funny because I've actually been hooked up in the in the sister lab over at WSU Pullman campus. And honest to goodness, the lab director over there thought that the machine was broken. And, and I said, I, I just don't think there's anything. Something was not plugged in correctly, but that's what it was. But I, I did start to get a little worried there. It could be that, or it could be that you didn't have to think hard about everything because you already knew it all. I like that. We'll go with that one. I'm always big onto the therefore what. So absolutely there's value in discovery even for discovery's sake. But if we're going to look at what's the outcome for this, who does it help? Uh, why do we do this work? What made you roll out of bed one morning and go, wait a second, I want to do the Simeon Lab? Well, there are two things, basically. One, the idea is that um, we have these new technologies coming on board that went from, in the last five or six years, something that would cost $30,000 to something that you could buy for yourself or a classroom for around fourteen hundred dollars. So the price of uh, for the price of a smart board, you could buy three or four of these for a classroom. And th and in the next five years, it, the price point will get lower and lower and lower, and the technology will become ubiquitous. So we're looking at technology that can be used in the classroom to enhance, augment learning. Whether that's virtual reality, where you are now operating within the cell itself, as if you were part of the cell, or augmented reality, where we can bring things into the classroom that could not normally be in the classroom, and you, the teacher, and everyone could see them at the same time. So this technology is currently being done mainly for entertainment, but kids are using this technology all the time, and they're becoming... This technology is becoming almost something that they, is in the background of their thinking. They don't think it's a big deal anymore, or they won't, because it's just something that they use all the time. So how can we engage these kids who are using this technology all the time into learning at the same time? And that's really what the point of the virtual reality and augmented reality is. It's not only to get kids involved in it, but to enhance their learning and really use the tools to make learning better or more accessible. Essentially, you're saying we're, we're tricking kids into learning the way my wife grates up vegetables into things that she, you know, supposed to be tasty for me, like spaghetti or banana bread. That is one way to look at it. And in the past, I've always talked about the idea that, that education and learning in some ways is subversive, that you get kids to do things that they wouldn't normally do because you make it fun or exciting. But that's teaching. I mean, if you're the type of teacher that walks in and says, you're going to learn this because I'm going to tell it to you or else... And you're going to like it. And you're going to like it. Surprisingly, learning doesn't really occur. So if you ask those kids three months later or six months later or three years later, what did they learn? They won't, they won't be able to tell you. I mean, the same thing happens in the college classes. I used to teach um, MCAT prep for pre-med students, the physics portion. And all these students got A's in physics. Um, but when they came to me to relearn physics for the test, they didn't know anything. So if they got an A in physics but they can't tell me the basic ideas of physics, did they really learn anything? So we can look at that and how a lot of teaching, the old school teaching, how if we're not engaging students in the learning, if they're not doing inquiry, if they're not creating their own experiences 
at all, they're not going to retain this information. I can see what happens when kids get very nervous about things. I have one that, that has anxiety issues. Uh, I, I've seen my little league team, when, when there's an actual game versus a scrimmage, it's, it's a lot different, and their performance is a lot different. How can we bring creativity either into educational curriculum or back into educational curriculum and, and uh, make sure that creativity is not lost. What happens is that inquiry education um, allows students to create um, in the, their own learning in the direction they want to do. So a teacher can basically say, what are you interested in? Here are some issues about that. Why don't we design an experiment or design a research for that? And so kids at all ages can do this. This additional technology the, the VR or AR um, allows students to even go beyond what they could do before. So you can imagine experiments that could never be allowed for anybody below the post-college level can be done virtually or, or through augmented reality in the classroom. And they can do these simulations or, as Lena Netta says, serious educational games that will show them and give them the experiences that they could never have, and then they could also create these experiences themselves. And by creating the experiences, whether we use this technology or not, that act of creation enhances learning. And so you have students that before wouldn't be able to tell you anything about cell division, let's say, because they learned it in this rote memorization way, can now become students that three, five, ten years later can tell you exactly about it because they discovered it themselves. A lot of times with technology, it widens the gap between students with special needs and those that don't have those those same kind of needs. What I've read, and maybe you can tell me more about this, is is uh, things like augmented reality can really help bridge that gap uh, and help empower those with disabilities. That's exactly true. So what, and one of the projects we're working is to use an earlier study that Don McMahon did with adults with special learning needs. We're now using that same type of study using um, just iPad minis being brought into K through 12 classrooms. Do the same type of augmented reality where the, the student looks through the iPad and it uses a, the camera to show you what you normally see, but it augments it by putting in words, it identifies things for you, it uses audio to tell you what you're looking at, and that helps both people with special needs, or so special education students, and also English, English language learners. But even beyond all that, these techniques work for any student. So it's interesting that a lot of things that we talk about in terms of this should be this is a special ed technique is actually just a good technique and we should be using it for all students but we kind of focus on special ed but I want to use this stuff for everybody and I think everybody can benefit from it even people who don't really like technology Technology is a tough thing to grasp when you're looking into the future I mean 5 years ago I'm not sure we would have had any idea what today would have been like. We always like to guess, and you as somebody who's into sci-fi knows that we think we might know 20 years. I think it was about 15 years ago that Minority Report came out and they had the, the like the flying cars and all that kind of stuff. And I remember seeing some of the uh, behind the scenes, director's cut type stuff. And one of them said, yeah, by the year 2020, I don't think this is too far off to, for us being able to do that completely. Now we're going to the self-driving cars, but it's not quite flying cars. So do we really know in the next five years what, what the future holds? Uh, no. One of the issues is um, that the people, well, how do I want to say this? So first of all, there's a famous book called Where's My Jetpack? 
that basically looked at a lot of these ideas that people had, a lot of these futurists had about what um, 2010 would look like, or even the year two, the year 2000. And most of them were kind of wrong. The people who were generally correct were science fiction authors to varying degrees, whether that's Arthur C. Clarke, um, whether that's um, Asimov or Larry Niven, they were basically, they were the closest to what we're probably doing. And the current science fiction authors like Neil Stevenson are also pretty good about anticipating what's going to happen. That being said, some things are wrong. We do not have flying cars. But I do have in my pocket a, what, an iPhone 5S, which is equivalent to a 1986 Cray computer. So what would take an entire room and cost millions of dollars, now I can fit in my pocket and play Words with Friends on. Which is kind of sad. That's generally what I use it for. And oddly, I don't talk on the phone very much. It's mainly texting and all these other things. So the technology is here. I think what revolutionizes technology is not what we think. We think it's going to be flying cars, but really it's the iPhone. So smartphones changed how we interact with people far more um, than anything else. And now, um, eventually we'll get to flying cars, but do you really trust people flying cars? <laughs> Ever? Um, when it comes to uh, things like self-driving cars or any types of the new technology, I see in the next 10 years, we're kind of at a, what's a watershed event. A lot of this technology is being developed kind of under, we don't notice it because there are a bunch of different things from around the world that are being developed to miniaturize and to automize yeah, that's the right word, automize things. And these are going to probably come together in the next 10 years to 20 years to really then that's where the change comes. And all of a sudden, my car driving itself is not a big deal anymore. But it, it requires a bunch of people all over the world working on their independent projects to then see how these projects fit together to create a car that can drive itself and not run into anybody or become the Terminator or whatever the heck people are afraid of. <laughs> So I think the technology is going to, it's going to rapidly change, but it's going to be something that we don't expect directly. Um, I guess the best question I said, what I said originally, I don't know. It could be, it could be a variety of different things. What the next best thing is, is probably going to surprise all of us, but it's going to be based upon computing power, uh, getting even even faster is going to be based upon the interface between humans and computers being even less noticeable. So right now I have to talk to my iPhone. I look through the iPhone, but they're already developing technologies where I think it's something and it moves. So we can all be a Jedi. But the point is that as soon as that technology gets more commonplace and slightly cheaper, things that we considered complete fantasy or science fiction are going to start occurring. You've got a wide range of research interests. Uh, how does how does all your research fit together? So originally, my research consisted uh, was concerned with the nature of science. So the nature of science is how, not the content of science, um, not the actual like how do I do titrations in chemistry versus doing whatever they do in biology, but it was about how we think about science and how um, science is a human endeavor and how it's creative and how it's engaging and the differences between object, um, observations and inferences and theories and law. So I was really interested in kind of a philosophy of science in a way. That changed as I started engaging more with research at WSU. I started working with STEM schools 
and STEM is science, technology, engineering, mathematics. We typically, when we deal with STEM, we're doing a lot of science and some math, but we kind of miss those other two letters. So I, I, it started changing as I took what nature science was in how we think about science, determining how we engage in STEM. And that engagement in STEM is how do teachers develop um, curriculum? How do they engage with the material? How do students learn STEM? What causes students to go into STEM careers? And that led more and more into the technology and how we can use this technology to enhance students' experiences to get them to like learning in general and to engage in learning, but also to engage in science. So while these seem very separate, maybe from the outside, in my mind, I see there's a basically a tree. We started with the nature of science and what science is, and we've the branches turn into things like how science and then technology and engineering and math are engaged with, with teachers, with students, and with learning and pedagogy. Just like your research is varied, so have the questions today. <laughs> this has been a segment of just letting a man talk. Uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate this. Any last words? I think basically, if I have any last final words, it's... Um, not final, final um, word, not your final, final words, just for the podcast. So last words would be that I'm very hopeful for the future of education. Things like this technology that I'm using, things like the learning that Don McMahon, which I based some of my work on, is doing, and other professors at WSN Abroad are going to kind of open up how education works. Right now, we've been in a situation for a lot of years where it's very regimented. I think that the use of technology, while it's always a double-edged sword, is going to allow students to blossom outside of just a classroom environment and allow teachers to create lessons and learning experiences that are kind of holistic and whole body in a way that we've really not been able to do as well up until now. Individualized, but at the same time, I you know, I've seen the sci-fi type stuff. In the, in the future, we're all wearing the silver glossy jumpsuit anyway. Yes, and boy, does that look good. <laughs> yeah, it looks, looks fantastic on some of us. Thank you so much, Jonah Firestone. I appreciate it. Uh, he's an assistant professor of science ed here at WCU Tri-Cities. And someday, if we were to write the sci-fi script, you will conquer the world. Uh, hopefully. Either I or one, hopefully one of my graduate students will, will finally conquer the world and remember me fondly. You've been listening to Education Eclipse, a College of Education podcast from Washington State University. 